But there are leaders that you just see them when they talk about their company or they talk about their team or they talk about their mission or they talk about their technology. And you can you can hear the excitement in their voice and you see the the sparkle in their eye, like Warren Buffett was talking about. There's, you can see that. But I could be really enamored of my work and I could be as a leader and I could really think that we're changing the world. And I could really think that my I got this great relationship with my team and I could be completely wrong. Yeah. I could I could be accurate about my connection to my work. But when we're talking about leadership, the real feedback comes from, all right, let's talk to the people that are on your team and see what they yeah. say. And then you, you know, you hear the real story pretty quickly. And, yeah. you know, for me, when I get hired to do that in the weeds, consulting and coaching and mentoring, I'm not a real fan of the word coaching in this context, but mentoring, I've got a, a client that, that calls me their um, leadership mentor in residence, for example. So, you know, what, what I'm doing there is, you know, working with the senior team and helping to guide them in what they're doing with their culture, which means what is their relationship with their direct reports. And I've seen over the years, I've had, you know, CEOs sit down with me and say all the right words. And then within 10 minutes of talking to their team, I can see that they're, they're living in a completely different universe. This is not an un unusual thing. I'm sure everybody listening is nodding their heads at this point. Um, Absolutely. Because we've all, and we've all been there ourselves too, right? So yeah. the feedback is really important. I have to be willing to go to my team as a leader and, and just ask, how, how am I doing? This From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, namely scale, sale, and succession, can often result in costly and confusing journeys. But the good news is it doesn't need to be that way. At Orange Kiwi, we help our clients succeed where others have failed by coming alongside them to help them navigate the challenges others simply aren't able to. We understand how to help you avoid that costly and confusing journey that comes with realizing the results that you really want. Visit our website today at orangekiwillc.com and use the code HLG2021 to book a complimentary 30-minute consultation and find out for yourself how we can help you gain greater clarity, confidence, and control while experiencing less stress and more satisfaction. Steve, it's great to see you today. I appreciate it. This has been a long time coming. Yeah. Uh, as most of our listeners and viewers probably have the same experience, you've met a lot of people in 2020 and early in 2021 that you've actually not met in person yet. And Steve would fall into that category, although we have a mutual friend in Dr. Ken Blanchard that we both know well. And uh, Ken suggested early on in 2020 when we were doing a lot of virtual meetings and, and Zoom calls and so forth that, that Steve and I should meet. As he mentioned, he's the author of at least four books that I know of. The first one, uh, well, your third book was Greater Than Yourself, The Ultimate Lesson in Leadership, which is a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller. Second book he wrote is called The Radical Edge, Stoke Your Business, Amp Your Life, and Change the World, which is hailed as a playbook for harnessing the power of the human spirit. The first book he wrote, The Radical Leap, A Personal Lesson in Extreme Leadership, is already considered a classic in the leadership field. He received the Fast Company Magazine Reader's Choice Award and recently named one of the top 100 best business books of all time. That's pretty good considering there are thousands that come out every year. And to be one of the 100 best of all time, that, that's pretty remarkable. 
His newest book came out in 2020, and Love is Just Damn Good Business. It's already listed as one of the top business strategy books. And uh, I've read it and we've talked about it. Steve has been on with us before on various calls that we've done talking about that. So, Steve, it's so good to see you and, and reconnect with you. Let me just ask you as we get started. Love is, is such a huge word and such a, it has so many different meanings. And we talk about agape love and philo love and all these other types of love. What do you think leaders of today are doing well when it comes to love in their leadership? And what do you think they could do better? Uh, well, thanks, Ed, and th- thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to see you, albeit uh, virtually. <clears throat> um, exactly. And actually, we're not. Uh, I mean, we're kind of up and down the road from each other, aren't we? Where Where are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm uh, in San Bernardino County, R- Riverside area. Oh, okay. Um, we yeah. just moved into Ontario, actually, within the last month or two. Oh, okay. San Diego, right? Yeah, I'm in I'm San Diego. Orange County guy, uh, born and raised in Orange County, but recently moved out to Ontario. You know, I I, um, I just did. Boy, it's a couple months ago already. My first in-person speaking gig in what a year and a half. Yeah, and um, it was in Ontario actually. So oh, I didn't, wow. I didn't actually be, huh? have to get on a plane. I, I I still haven't been on a plane in yeah. uh, in in forever. But I, I got in my car and I drove to it, and it was really trippy to be in a group of 150 people uh, live in person, and I felt like a, I felt like a little kid. Because everything's been on Zoom, obviously, or some platform. And when this client was interviewing me, as when they were in the decision process about who they're going to bring in to speak, one of the guys said, he said, so uh, if you had to describe yourself as a keynote speaker with one word, what would that word be? And I said, well, if I have to describe myself as a speaker over the last year, that one word would be pantsless. <laughs> nice, exactly. I went. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I went. I'm not exaggerating this, Ed. I went for an entire year without putting on a pair of pants. Yeah, I because I wear my you know my workout shorts. Yeah, bare feet. If I got a if I got a gig, I put on a nice blazer and a shirt, and that's live from the waist up, basically. Yeah, I went to a meeting a couple of weeks ago with clients, and I, I put on shoes, dress shoes. I mean, yeah. I put on flip-flops and some tennis shoes to go for a walk or what have you. But uh, yeah, I put dress shoes on and had to dust them off, first of all, literally <laughs> right. dust them off. And then uh, my feet were like, what the hell is this? What are you putting on me? I don't recognize it. I mean, and I'm when showing some feet, barefoot as we speak. And when your feet start talking to you, you know, that's a... That's, yes, when your feet are talking, you've been home a little too long, what are, right? What are you putting on me? Hey, what is yeah, this? What are you doing? It's like they say, if, you're, uh, if your feet smell and your nose runs, you were built up. <laughs> upside down, right? Exactly. When your feet start talking to you, you're in big trouble. Yeah. So, so to answer yeah, your I, question. I, did a speaking, I, I did a speaking engagement live too a couple months ago, and it was just wonderful to be yeah. out with people. So. I mean, I felt like, I've kind of felt like an anthropologist. It was like, what are, <laughs> what are these creatures that live yeah. in, exist in proximity to each other and breathe the same oxygen? What is, it is very weird, that's <clears> for sure. What a, what a weird, just what a weird time, huh? I yeah. And I know we talk about this all the time, but... Uh, yeah, and we'll come back because I do want to, you know, maybe touch a little bit later. And I think it relates to your it relates to your question. So, you know, yeah. what are leaders doing well around this love thing, and what are they? Where, where can they do a little better? I don't. First of all, I don't know that the conversation, the general widespread conversation, has yet gotten to the point where love is is a standard topic among leaders. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of the really. What do you mean by that exactly? I, I hear that a lot. What do you what do you mean by that? Which is a, a legitimate question. So I think 
I think leaders, we saw a lot of this through the pandemic. There are many leaders who are doing a better job, ironically, of connecting with people because they haven't been physically connected. And there's been more, a little bit more reaching out on the personal level and the asking the how are you doing question in a sincere sort of a way versus, the, you know, passing in the hallway. Hey, how you doing? I'm oh, good. How you doing? You know, but right. really, how how are you and how's your family? How you doing was I see you, but I'm on my way to another meeting. That's now right. It's actually, I'm listening. How are you doing was a question that you asked, really not wanting an answer. And if somebody answered that question, it was like awkward. <laughs> yeah, what you, what, what, wait, why did you stop to say something? I'm just, that's just my way of saying, Steve, I see you. Exactly. exactly. And sometimes it means I barely see you. I'm vaguely aware of your presence. So I think we have overall done a, a good job of letting people know that we're, that we're here for them. And of course, I'm overgeneralizing. Where where leaders can do better is in really taking that aspiration seriously. Instead of using love as a throwaway word, as in I love you, man, or or I love my team, or I love pizza, or I love, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We use it in a lot of context. To really ask the question, what should that look like in the way that we do business? And that's really the fundamental question that I work with when I when I work with clients. So, you know, part of my work is doing the the speaking and the keynotes and the workshops and all of that. And another part of my work is in the weeds, working with leaders, helping them to create a culture of, of that operationalizes love. And and really, when you get right down to it, that's the essential question. What should love look like in the way company XYZ? conducts its business in the everything from the way we, the way we hire people and the kind of people that we hire everything to our hr comp and benefits to our customer process to our physical environment if we're lucky enough to have one to our mm -hmm. you know it's it's right. all of that work that goes along with it so this isn't about love as a as a sentiment although there's nothing wrong with that <clears throat> it's really about love as a practice and a discipline which requires us to do a lot of work to making that happen. So we could all do better at that, myself included. And I think it's a very small handful of positional C-suite level leaders that are willing to take on that sort of a challenge. But I do think that number is growing. I've heard you talk about Warren Buffett when he's looking at buying a company he wants to see and feel that there's a love for the business when he's talking to companies. Can you talk about that a little bit? I watched a YouTube video of yours a while back. And, yeah. Uh, that, that love versus just the love of money, but the love of what they do. The happiest people that I know in my life are people who actually wake up and are excited about getting to go to work and do the things they get to do. And, and yeah, I love my job. I love my company. And I say that all the time. People say, when are you going to retire? It's like, I'm already retired. If that, if retirement means, wake up every day and get to do what I love. I guess I'm already retired. Yeah. I'm still getting paid to do <clears throat> this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the Warren Buffett example is it's a great model of comparison for a, a number of reasons. For one thing, we tend to view business in an either or kind of a context. So if you look at Warren Buffett, what he's known for, of course, more than anything else, is his ridiculous track record on picking great companies. So here's a guy who under, understands how business works and has you know, shown it to his own bottom line. 
he's also known for, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is known for acquiring companies and then staying out of their way. They don't meddle. And if you, if you look at the biographies and the background on Warren Buffett, one of the things that you learn is that he's always had an incredible facility for numbers. He's kind of a savant when it comes to numbers. And that is the way we stereotypically tend to think of business. It's about the balance sheet. It's about the bottom line. It's about the analysis. It's about all of that, which is all certainly important, but it's not all about that. So the quote that you're referring to, it comes from an interview that I saw with him and they, the interviewer asked him, how do you account for your great success? And he talked about all that stuff. But then he said, in the final analysis, before I buy, actually sign the proverbial check <laughs> to buy a company, yeah. he said, I have to sit down in the same room with the CEO and I have to look into their eyes and I have to see in their eyes, I'm paraphrasing here, is this a person who loves the money or do they love the business? And if I don't get the sense that they love this business, I don't care how great it looks on paper. I'm not buying it because the, if the love's not there, then this company is not going to continue to grow in value over time. If all I see is the dollar signs instead of the hearts in this person's yeah. eyes, then I know that the only thing they're interested in is the exit strategy. And they're doing this transaction so they can you know, stick their money from the transaction in their pocket and get the hell out of there as soon as they can. And I'm trying to invest in an asset that's going to grow in value over time. And that's not going to happen unless the love is there. So I figured, you know, if it's good enough for Warren Buffett, it's good enough for me. So in your role, you work prior to being the pantsless speaker where you were just (laughs) doing it from the comforts of your home in San Diego, like I am up here. Because you've done a lot of research, and it's not just research, but it's what you do when you're talking to these leaders. What do you see that tells you that someone really loves what they're doing? Other than them saying, because you can say, I love my job, and people say it all day long, but Let's talk about what the nonverbal is. What do you see in people or what are the, the buzzwords or things you hear that convince you, Steve, that man, this person really does love what they're doing? Yeah, it's um, it's really, for me, it's always been more about what other people say about them, hmm. what awesome. the people around them say about them. But then you can also tell. I mean, there are some people who are just good, you know, just good at bullshitting and they'll, they'll, they know how to say the right things. I, I like, I call them posers, right? They say mm-hmm, the right sure. words, but don't make any change in, in what they actually do. Yeah. And you can kind of see that. But there are leaders that you just see them when they talk about their company or they talk about their team or they talk about their mission or they talk about their technology. And you can, you can hear the excitement in their voice and you see the, the sparkle in their eye, like Warren Buffett was talking about. You could see that. But I could be really enamored of my work and I could be, as a leader, and I could really think that we're changing the world. And I could really think that my I've got this great relationship with my team and I could be completely wrong. I I could be accurate about my connection to my work. But when we're talking about leadership, the real feedback comes from, all right, let's talk to the people that are on your team and see what they say. And then you, you know, you hear the real story pretty quickly. And, you know, for me, when I get hired to do that in the weeds, consulting and coaching and mentoring, I'm not a real fan of the word coaching in this context, but mentoring, I've got a a client that that calls me their um, leadership mentor in residence, for example. So 
you know, what, what I'm doing there is, you know, working with the senior team and helping to guide them in what they're doing with their culture, which means what is their relationship with their direct reports. And I've seen over the years, I've had, you know, CEOs sit down with me and say all the right words. And then within 10 minutes of talking to their team, I can see that they're, they're living in a completely different universe. This is not an un, unusual thing. I'm sure everybody listening is nodding their heads at this point. Um, Absolutely. Because we've all, and we've all been there ourselves too, right? So yeah. the feedback is really important. I have to be willing to go to my team as a leader and, and just ask, how, how am I doing? It's the old, you know, the, the, the late Ed Koch, former mayor of New York, right. was known for walking around the streets of New York and asking New Yorkers that question. Hey, how am I doing? How am I doing as your mayor? Mm -hmm. You know, you ask a New Yorker that question, you're going to get an honest answer. Yeah, be here, be ready. You would have some thick skin if you're going to ask a New Yorker that question. That's and I think sure. we all need that thick skin. I think we all need to be asking that question of the people that, we're, that we work with and the people on our team, for that matter. I don't have to be a leader to ask that question. And it's a scary-ass question to ask. It is. Do you think that love, from a comical standpoint, I think of one of my favorite TV shows, The Office. And I think yeah. of Steve Carell, his Michael Scott character. Right. No one loved paper. And their job more than he did. Was he qualified or was he, <laughs> you know, did he have the the aptitude? Probably not. He's yeah. an idiot. But um, do you think love for and passion for what you do can cover up some? Maybe. I mean, in, in that it's a sitcom. It's a stupid. TV right. But it's still, it's a great question. So, again, it's not an either or scenario. This is really important because a lot of us tend to do that. We say, well. The love thing is important. Sure, I get that. But really, we got to make money. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. That's why love yeah, is course. damn good business because yeah. they're, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're wrapped in together. If I can create an environment that people love working in, I'm going to attract the best people. If I can create a product and a service and an approach that my customers love being a part of, I'm going to attract the best clients and investors, et cetera. The, the idea that we have to choose is, is false. The other, the other problem is that we, if we think about an individual level, if somebody is really passionate and they really, and they, they love this business and they're completely incompetent, well, that, that doesn't work either. So right. if I'm a great technician, if I'm a great operation, operations person, but I have no tolerance for people doesn't matter how great I am with the operation. If I'm in a leadership position or working on a team, unless I'm working in, in a vacuum, that's a problem. So it's, it's both and that we're after. It has to be a balance. I have to be passionate. I've got a, and I got, and I, I'm going to show it in my own way. It's not about adopting a personality that's, you know, I'm an introvert. And now suddenly I got to be an extrovert. It's not what it's about. But I, I do have to have that love for the work and for my people, ideally. And I have to be really damn good at what I do. Think about the last time you bought a gift for a friend or family member. The better you know them, the easier it was to get them something memorable, right? Well, it's the same for brands that want to deliver memorable customer experiences. The better they know their customers, the more likely they are to establish strong relationships, exceed expectations, and build loyalty. At McKenzie, that's what we do. We empower brands to understand and connect with the person behind the purchase, so their customer experiences are meaningful, unique, and truly valuable. 
Learn more at mckenziecorp.com. So where did the idea for this book and then this title of the book, Love is Just Damn Good Business, where did that come from? I know it's something that's been on your mind a while, but you know, we all have that light bulb that goes off, says, I should write a book and this should be the title. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. So um, inspiration for this developed over a long period of time. So early, early on in my career, in fact, 1994, to be exact, I went to work for, you know, for Tom Peters. Right. And I uh, was the vice president of, of the Tom Peters company through you know, the mid 90s. I left in 2000. So I was there for six years and I got great exposure. Jim Kuzis uh, of Kuzis and Posner Leadership Challenge fame was the president of the company. Uh, so he's a mentor. Tom's a mentor. I had these great mentors. And the late, great Terry Pierce, who was one of the finest executive coaches on the planet, was also a very close mentor for me. And and I started working with these really great clients, you know, at high levels, you know, in lots of different industries. And I I got really good at delivering, you know, content and working with clients and facilitating and coaching. And I just got to the point after doing that for a number of years, where I asked myself, what do I think about all this? Given all the mentors that I've had and the experience that I've had with all these companies, if I could wave a magic wand and have everybody get it, what would it be? And it became really clear to me in asking that question that when you get down to its essence, it's really all about love. Kuzis and Posner call it encouraging the heart. Jim was the first guy that that I ever heard use the word love in a business context. And, and it just became like, all of a sudden, I started seeing it everywhere. So when I wrote my first book, which is The Radical Leap, came out in its first edition in 2004, there had been, I left Tom Peters in 2000. So there, mm -hmm. were, there was a four-year time span where I was out, I was doing mostly keynote speaking at that time. And I started to talk about this love thing. And then it developed into this framework that I call the radical leap, which is love, energy, audacity, and proof. That was the model I started teaching around and communicating around and giving speeches about. So I've been on this love soapbox since it's been 21 years now. And it's just developed over time. And, and the longer I've been talking about this, the more evidence I've seen of its of its uh, accuracy and efficacy. And I've just, you know, picked up a lot of stories and, and case studies and, and examples along the way. So when it, it, it just, I wanted to write a book that addressed it directly. It was kind of, you know, kind of a guerrilla approach to this whole thing. The Radical Leap is the title, not love. Uh, the second book, The Radical Edge, no love in the title. Greater than yourself, not love in the title. If you go to my website, it didn't say The Love Guy. Yeah, you know, The Love Doctor. That's already yeah. taken. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, you know, you saw Extreme Leadership and and all that, which is the name of my platform. So I thought, you know, it's, it's time to just put it on the cover. And the reason I called it Love is Just Damn Good Business is really very simple. It's because love is just damn good business. And yeah. actually, I'll, I'll tell you a, a funny story about that. So McGraw Hill is the publisher, and when they decided to, you know, to buy the book and publish it, I was talking with my editor. She said, "I have a confession to make." Said, really? What's what's that? She said, "When I see what happens in the in the publishing world for for 
folks who are listening and haven't been a part of that before. Typically, in a traditional publisher, what will happen is you have an acquisitions editor who buys a, who's, says, I want this book, and then they take it to a team, the publishing team within the company. So you have other editors and you have salespeople, and, and they kick it around, and they kind of decide collectively to give it the green light or not. So she, her confession was she sat down with the team, and they loved the concept of the book. She said, but my confession is when I pitched it to them, I changed the title. Hmm. So what do you what do you mean you changed the title? She said, I and I, I don't even remember what she called it. It was like the challenge or you know, some generic oh. crap like that. Something <clears throat> and it didn't stick, yeah. Yeah. And she said, Well, I changed it because I thought that the title was a little too provocative and I just didn't know that they were gonna go for it. So I pitched the idea for the book and everybody got really excited about it. And then one of the one of the sales guys raised his hand and he said, I like everything about this. I only have one problem. And she said, what's that? I don't like the title. Yeah. And she said, well, the author's title was Love is Just Damn Good Business. And they all, the whole team went, that's a great the bell, title. The bell just rung and yeah. they all said, yep, that's it. So, yep. so, you know, kudos to her that she confessed all that. She didn't have to there tell me that that happened. Um, so, you know, it's just, it was just a title that, uh, that kind of says it all. And it's funny because to me, all this stuff is really obvious. And I'm sure to more than a few listeners of your podcast, Ed, it, this stuff is pretty obvious. To the world at large, it's not yet obvious, like we were talking about a few minutes ago. Sure. So, yeah, if, if they're listening to podcasts, they're probably trying to work on themselves. Most of my, all of my clients, as you know, are family owned companies. And I think one of the things that I'm, the reason I love and I'm passionate about the work I get to do every day is because I'm working with people who love what they do, which reminds me of the quote, the subtitle of your book, and it's over your shoulder for those, you know, who have your book or will get your book, you'll see it says, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. Right. And that is one of my favorite things about my job is when it's evident to the people I work with that I love what I do, I do it even better. Yeah, that's right. Because and this is now I recognize they see what Ed loves what he's doing. I think, okay, I better step it up. Because they know I love this. I'm not just getting the paycheck. It's common sense. And and let's also acknowledge that somebody listening to a podcast called From the Heart, yeah. even though it's a play on your name, it's, sure. it, they're, they're already in that, living in that neighborhood, right? <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, if, yeah. if your podcast was titled, you know, uh, Be an Some Asshole. Some guy in Ontario <laughs> talking to people. Be an asshole. Yeah. You'd have you'd yeah. have a different audience. Different audience. There you go. It's like, hey, that's right. This guy's singing yeah. my song. You can be successful and still be an idiot. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. It's like Steve Martin. You can be a millionaire and never pay taxes. All <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. So let me ask you a question. I I, I and again I, I joked earlier about the emotion and going back to childhood, but early on in your life, whether it was childhood or whether it was Tom Peters or whoever it was. Is there a first example of that loving leader that stands out for you? Maybe a parent, maybe a whoever, you fill in the blank, where that first example comes to you of, you know, it may not have hit me then, but when I look back now, yeah, that woman or that man really was that first loving leader that I saw. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I have to say from my from my early life, like pre-business, I didn't. I I can't think of anybody that that fits that model. 
I didn't really start thinking in terms of leadership until later on. What I did experience was really deep, meaningful friendship. And I've had deep, meaningful friendships for as long as I can remember, for my entire life. And many of my closest friends are people that I met when when I was a kid. And then later on, as I got into business, I saw that that dynamic played out in business as well. So many of my other closest friends are people that I met in business. And there's a whole other category of people that have become very close, loving friends that I met because they read one of my books and reached out to me or came to an event or whatever. So that's the, the, the primary thread that ran through my life. From a leadership perspective, I started to experience, well, I was a leader myself before I knew what the hell I was doing. I was an entrepreneur and I had my own small financial services company before I was 30 years old. And I was just out there flailing away. I had an intuitive instinct for building a team uh, and creating an environment of, you know, working with people that I really loved working with, but I wasn't necessarily consciously aware of, of the application of business. And, and that was a, that was a huge disaster, that business for, for a lot of reasons. And it went down in flames, um, primarily because I was in an industry that I hated. Yeah. And uh, I was in the, you know, the commodities business, as a matter of fact. So I had a moral dilemma with seeing people lose their money in a speculative investment day after day. <laughs> so when I got out of that and started doing, in the very beginning, I was doing some, you know, training programs and, and as an independent consultant, but I got hired by an international consulting company. It was actually based out of Denmark. It's called TMI, which is a very interesting acronym because it has a different mm-hmm. meaning in every generation. Yeah. <laughs> My kids always say, Dad, you're TMI, too much information. And I yeah. created a different acronym. I'll tell you about maybe some other time. Yeah, to, to date to date myself back then, it was it was a funny acronym because it stood for Three Mile Island. Oh, uh, so, you, you know, it's yeah. one of those, it's an acronym that, yeah. but anyway, it was, that it was neither of those things. And, and it was the first time that I worked, started working with a lot of different companies at the higher leadership levels and started to see examples of, of people that I, that inspired my clients that inspired. But there isn't any one individual that, that stands out. There was a lot of people in a lot of different scenarios that had that common, commonality. Yeah. Who inspires you now? I mean, I know there's a long list, but when you think about, I mean, I, for me, I, the list is long, but when my high school baseball coach, who was my coach when I was a teenager, just passed away, I just found out two days ago. And, um, you know, he was 86 years old when he passed just, you know, within the last couple of weeks. And even when I wasn't around him for 30 years, he was still inspiring me. Those are the lessons he taught me when I was a teenager. Fortunately, I had a chance to reconnect with him since the, you know, probably 2000 five or six when my work took me back to his area up in Northern California again. So I can think of a lot of people that inspired me then and obviously now, but is there, is there kind of that uh, Tuesdays with Maury, so to speak, person in your life that you go to a lot that maybe when you feel like the well is running dry? I'm very fortunate in that I, I, there are a lot of people that fit that category. Yeah. I'll give you just a couple of people off the, off the top of my head. From a mentor, a mentor standpoint, my most significant mentor over the, across the years is, has been uh, Jim Kuzis. 
And he's, you know, he's a very uh, humble guy. But in terms of, of leaders out there doing great work that inspire me, um, the first guy that, that came to mind is uh, Frank DeAngelis, who was the, um, the principal of Columbine. Yeah. And, and he's retired now, but he, right. was, he was the principal of Columbine during, you know, during the tragedy. And, and after, uh, after the, that horrific event, he made a commitment to the kids who were in kindergarten at the time that he would not leave, he would not retire until they graduated high school because keeping the community together was that important to him. Yeah. And wow, it just it did an incredible job and just a lovely guy. He's not a person that I, I, I go to for advice, but just, just the thought of him, I could certainly, but just, sure. just the thought of him uh, in, inspires me. And then, you know, I just, I, I meet some, some really great people. Uh, my, my clients inspire me. I, I'm inspired by entrepreneurs who, who take on a huge challenge and do it with the, with the right frame of mind. In other words, they want to create, not only do they want to create a great business or businesses, but they want to create a great environment for people to work in. I have a couple of clients that fit that category. And uh, in terms of, uh, you know, publicly traded CEO types, Burton Goldfield, who's the CEO of Trinet, which is a $4 billion plus dollar, uh, publicly traded company They're in the uh, HR world. I met Burton when he was a fairly recent CEO at Trinet. I think they were a few hundred million dollar company at the time. So this is and this Just is a like, small company then, yeah. Exactly. Geez, I mean, and now this guy has has built or or been a part of building, as he would say, now several multi billion dollar companies. And he loves, oh my gosh, a guy who loves clients like like he does. I just don't see very often. So I'm really, I'm really fortunate and I've got a lot of people around me that uh, I get inspiration from. And part of it's because that's the business that I'm in, right? I'm always on the sure. lookout for these people. And when I find them, when I hear about their reputations, I reach out or the other way around. And, and it's just a, it's a wonderful thing that can happen. Is there, I teach a leadership class for, for college kids and sometimes high school kids as well. And I just did one that ended a couple of nights ago and I asked them to think about leaders that they admire. And then the next question I ask, and so I will now ask you, uh, is there a common denominator in those people you just mentioned? If you think about, you know, maybe one or two characteristics or one or two things about each of those individuals you just mentioned that you go, yep, what they have in common is this. Other than they're now my mentor, like we just, the duh, because you just answered the question. <clears throat> yeah. Is there a characteristic or something or a value that they possess? Well, that you, that, yeah, a couple of things. First one's got it should be pretty obvious. They love they, they love their job. They love their job and they love their people that they work yeah. with. When I say their people, it's not like they own them, but right, you know the, the people, people that they, they work with. Yeah. And uh, to add to that, it's it's something I mentioned a few minutes ago. It's it's humility, humbleness. Or as one of my kids said once upon a time, she took those two words and stuck them together and came out as humbility. <laughs> humility. I like that. Well, you say that great, word, we know what it means. It's a great it's word. It's a great word. Yeah. That's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm borrowing that one. Yeah. Humbility. They I love have it. humbility. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, every one of those people that I mentioned, if I, if I was sitting and talking to them and telling them 
what I just told you to their face, they'd be grateful, I'm sure, you know, for yeah. for hearing kind words about themselves. But but they always it's always about us, it's not about me. And uh I think that's you know related to it. It's it's this this attitude that says, I don't I don't do anything. <laughs> I'm yeah. it's the don't give me the credit. Look at these amazing people that I have around. So it's it's all kind of, you know, it's tied in together, but those are very very universal common characteristics among those folks. And I think also at least at least a confirmation on the surface that that they're willing that they are personally willing to change, evolve and adapt and grow. Uh and when I say at least on the surface, I think, you know, for for a lot of us myself included, our intentions are good, but the process of growth is by its nature a little bit painful. And by our nature, we we don't like pain. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we tend to avoid it. We but at least they say, us, so. at least they say they're willing and, yeah. and will at least take a few steps in that direction when necessary. I think of a man who's influenced my whole life since I was a child who I've never met, and that's Vince Scully the former Dodger announcer who did it for 67 years. Yeah. He's famous for saying, look, this isn't about me, you know, stand up and take a bow, Vinny, come back and announce the world series. Well, this isn't about me. What do you mean? And so, you know, for me, I think a mentor like him, he's, I wouldn't call Vinny a mentor, but certainly someone that I admire as much as many of the men and women I have met and who have been a part of my life because I look at the way they treat their job. It's like, look, it's not about me. So well, and the, the other thing so, I would I would add to that, Ed, is yeah. you'll notice in the, the examples that I gave you, they're all people that I know firsthand. Yeah. I'm always reluctant to point to point to a public figure and make any kind of judgments on how they are as a leader. So we talked about Warren Buffett before. Mm-hmm. I don't know him personally. Right. What I'm doing is I'm commenting on what he said. Sure. <clears throat> now, back in the day, I'll give you an example of this. I quoted, in the Radical Leap, I quoted Carly Fiorina, who at the time was, was the CEO of HP, Hewlett Packard. And she was, you know, one of the first really high-level uh, women CEOs. She had a great reputation, and she had a great quote about the leader's greatest obligation is to create an environment where people can aspire to change the world. And I just, ah, oh, that's it. But I didn't know her personally. and. Her tenure at HP was very contentious, as it turns out. And there were people at HP that really loved her and people at HP that, let's just say, did not. To the point where I was giving a keynote to one of the companies that spun off from HP. And they told me not to quote Carly Hmm. in my speech. Interesting. Because it would piss them. They were some of those that didn't take to it as much. Mostly. Mostly. At least in that company. So the lesson for that in me is when we see somebody from afar, we get certain impressions through articles and their own quotes about things they say. It gets back to what we were talking about before. The most important thing is what their people say about Yeah. And second to that is my direct experience. So I very rarely um, we'll we'll hold up somebody I don't know personally as an example of what I'm teaching. That's a great point because we really speak from our experience of that person more than anything else. 
you talked about the company that you had back in your uh, younger days that crashed in your term, crashed and burned or went down in flames. How did you learn from that? And how did you resurrect your career into what you're doing now? What was that transition like? So again, this was before I was 30. I started everything young. I had a family young. I had, before I was 30, I had uh, three kids and and a business. <laughs> Yeah. And in a business that I hated. So when when I shut that company down, it was because I I had that moral dilemma with just the nature of that business. And I was miserable. I was I felt like I was killing myself. I had nothing. I was just I was, you know, the old cliche, I was dead inside. I mean, yeah. it really wasn't too far from that. Yeah. And completely miserable. And I knew two things. After I shut that down, I got out of that business and I had these mouths to feed. There were two things that I knew with equal clarity. One was that I knew there was something that I was supposed to be doing on this planet. I had no doubt. And with equal clarity, I knew that I had no freaking idea what it was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was in this state of, of yearning and I wouldn't call it desperation although there were days where it felt like that but really just uh, just uh, wanting to know and so i was in that state of mind where i was hyper sensitive to what was what people did for a living really cuz i was looking for something and and this is how it happened and i'm not exaggerating it went just like this i was having a conversation with an old friend we were talking about a mutual friend who i hadn't seen for a while who was, she was doing, this is the way it was told to me, she was doing some kind of workshops for corporations. And all my lights went out. I said, that's, that, that is it. That's me. I don't know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what kind of workshops, it. I don't know. But that sounds like something. I, I didn't even know there was, so what I discovered, you know, when I started investigating it, I, I discovered that there was this whole industry, which at the time we called training and development. Now we call it learning and development, whatever. But, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't know anything about this stuff. I didn't come out of the corporate world. I was an entrepreneur, so I started looking into it and I and talking to some people and and I got hired to do business writing workshop for AT and T because I had a writing background and a business background and it it was like everything everything lit up, and from that moment, and literally is a word I use literally, just so you know. Literally in that moment, my whole the whole trajectory of my life changed and changed consciously. So from right then I I saw what I what I wanted to do and what I was meant to do, which was doing something with people in business to help them get better at what they do. And as I learned more about the industry, I got more opportunities and I gained more experience and and that that's where it started. And you wanted to keep people from having that dead inside feeling that you talked about that I've had, that many of our listeners have had. So many people are in positions or in lives or in churches or in associations or organizations where they feel like they're just going through the motions. They're just feeling dead inside. So yeah, you have, it feels to me like you're saying, I've touched the flame. It's hot. I don't want other people to burn themselves the same way I did. Let me try to steer them into where their passion and their heart is. And that's, again, you hit on it for me too, the name of the podcast, From the Heart. Yeah, it's a play on my last name, but 
I really believe that if we're operating from our heart, you know, we have to operate from our head because we have to have logic in there as well, obviously. But from our heart is where it really makes the most yeah. sense. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely music. right. Yeah, so that yeah. was that's the, yeah. the kind of precursor to that whole story. I didn't start oh, out as a business person. Right. I started right. out as a musician. There you go. And that's really what I wanted to do. So it's an yeah. interesting, you know, this whole idea about pursuing your passions and, and, and all that. Uh, it's not necessarily a linear path. Let me just say it that way. So <laughs> most of us don't take a linear path. I've found as well. But yeah, yeah. I mean, some people do, and God bless them. Yeah. It's an amazing thing when right. somebody, you know, from the time they're a little kid. One of my clients uh, just having a conversation with the other day. She's uh, she works for a uh, biotechnology company. From the she said from the, as long as she can remember, she wanted to be a scientist because when she was a little girl, and she asked her parents why, why. Mm-hmm. Why? Yep. Her parents were both scientists. She said they always had go. an answer. They, yeah, they a scientific were, answer for her. They yeah. were always able to answer the question why. Yeah. So there's somebody who from her whole life knew what she wanted to do. The rest of yeah. us, not so much. So, so for me, I was going to be a musician. And I got married right out of college. I married into my daughter, Angelica. She's my adopted daughter. She was four. When I married her mother. So when I was 23 years old, suddenly I was mm-hmm. a father. A year later, my son Saul came along. I was 25, uh, 24 and a father of two. And trying to be a musician. And mm-hmm. came to discover that being a musician and feeding people were mutually exclusive ideas. Mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> so I gave Bruce up. Springsteen. Yeah. I gave up the music. And, and uh, it, was, it was very painful. And that's when I got into business and found another path, as you just heard. But music has always been an important part of my life. And in, in recent years, I have uh, not that I, I never stopped playing. I stopped playing music for a little while because it was so painful. I just shut off the faucet. But eventually I started playing again. And it's just kind of therapy. And sitting down and playing music with friends is the greatest thing in life. But in recent years, I've started to integrate it more into my work and going into the studio and bringing my guitar out on stage and. It's it's just been amazing and wonderful. People respond to that. I've heard a lot of musicians. I, I come from a very musically inclined family, and I'm the one that it skipped. I think I've got two brothers that, you know, both make money with their guitar and their voice. And uh, my dad played the banjo and still plays the piano at 94 years old. Very musically wow. inclined. I watched a video you showed me middle of 2020. I think right after we first virtually met, which we still haven't literally using your word literally met because we haven't been if we've been in the same room together we didn't know it prior to 2020 and hopefully we will soon you took a group and you've done this more than once but i watched one you took a group of people online and wrote a song i guess it was a company outing of some sort where you did this can you tell us about that a little bit i know we're you know we're running yeah. up against time here a little bit but i we can't not talk about this in my opinion yeah uh thank you i always have time to talk about it yeah i love this so my friends uh, the Brothers Corin, K-O-R-E-N, mm-hmm. are world, they're two brothers originally from Australia, they live in Ojai, California. We belong to the same organization, uh, an organ- a leadership organization, and, which is where we met a number of years ago. So Isaac and Torald Corin are world-class musicians. When I say world-class, again, I mean it literally. They, they've had a couple of incarnations in their band they were known as the Kin, K-I-N, a number of years ago. They 
they opened, you toured with and opened for Pink and Coldplay and Rod Stewart and Bon Jovi. I mean, big arena shows and all that. And they're incredible. It just, I, I'm a huge, I'm, I'm a fanboy of their work. Uh, they're amazing singers and songwriters and, and incredibly wonderful, generous, um, loving people. So we got to be very close friends. And they are songwriters. That's their, their business. And they've, over the years, they've worked with many, many people, many musicians and many people who want to be musicians or who have been frustrated musicians or have a song inside of them, but I've never done anything with. And they take them along what they call the songwriter's journey and they help them to write their song. And then they started experimenting and doing that with groups of people. So we got together on this and we have something called Your Big Leadership Voice. And if you go to yourbigleadershipvoice.com, you can see um, a little bit more about it. But essentially what we do is we go into a, into a group and we've done it virtually, you know, uh, during, during the days of the COVID, as I like yeah. to call it. <clears throat> um, and we do it in person as well where we'll take a group of people. We've done it at my extreme leadership events several times. And it's about telling the story of this collection of people through music. And what we do is create from scratch with the entire group an entirely original song. So over the course of an hour and a half, two hours, we start with nothing and we end up with a song that everybody's participated in writing and then we kind of perform it together. It's like a magic show every time. And it, because what mm -hmm. happens, these are not like, you know, corny little jingles that happen. These right. are like, no, I've really, heard some of them. They're, they're powerful. They're really Very good powerful. Songs. And the emotion you see in the people too, that's what gets me. It's incredible. At the end of it, when I see them go, wow, look what we just created from nothing. From nothing. Yeah, and it it is an extraordinary experience every time. Yeah, we're we're uh, we've got a, a client. We're going to be doing this for them uh, live and in person, but it won't be until until August of twenty twenty two. You know, just because that's the way it is. Yeah. So we we've are. done it. Yeah, you know, we and it works beautifully virtually. I mean, just beautifully. It does. Um. So what we do is we integrate it with this whole the whole you know leadership. Um, skill of, of storytelling, you know, telling, we all have our stories to tell. And part of our job as leaders is not only to tell our stories, but to draw that out of everybody else. So as individuals, we all have a story. And as teams and companies, we all have a story as well, a collective story. And this is a way to tell our collective story in, in a very creative way. So sometimes we'll, we'll kind of inject the theme. So if we're working with a with a particular company and they have a certain mission, it's like let's keep that theme in mind and then it ends up being kind of the company's theme song. But again, yeah. not like a little, you know, commercial you'd hear not on like TV. Like it was a jingle written for a 30-second yeah. commercial right. on on TV or radio. Yeah, it's great. Have there great been fun. similar and I'd love to get a sample of your musical talents here in a moment if you have something in mind. I have a couple of ideas, but I'm going to let you if you don't come up with something, I have a suggestion, but have there been takeaways that have surprised you from that 
project with these groups? I mean, there's probably certain things you're looking for. I know anytime yeah. you do a training, I've done a lot of training as well. And there's always a path you hope they'll take. And when they take it, you know, it's just an awesome feeling, but it's even more powerful when they find a different path or a different takeaway that you didn't even think about. Are there takeaways that have kind of shocked or surprised you from this? Yeah, well, well, one is that it, it's, it surprises me every time. Awesome. Every time. Because every time there's that moment or series of moments where it's like, this is going nowhere. This is a freaking disaster. <laughs> Train wreck. And up ahead. it always, <laughs> always emerges from that, you know, the phoenix rising. It always, always yep. emerges from that. So I think that it's a great takeaway because the creative process is the same in any context. It's the same in a, in a, in a, a you know, project team in, in business. There are those moments where it's like, what the hell are we going to do? And you put the collective attention on solving the issue. And it's, it seems like a miracle when it comes out of nothing. So it's a really great illustration of it because, you know, the stakes are not, the stakes are different and it's, it's a creative kind of a fun project. But when you're up on stage, I'm up on stage with a guitar and, and, and with the, with the guys and we're pulling ideas from the group and it's like, uh, there's nothing happening here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you've got 100, 150 people looking at you going, what are we going to do now? And and comes back from the brink every single And you got like time. 10 minutes to go until the session's over. It's like, where are we here? And then somehow it happens. Yeah. And, and you know, a big part of that is their genius in facilitating that, sure. that creative process, which they've done many times on a, you know, on a very professional level. So, yeah. So grab your guitar if you'd like, if you're so sure. Inclined. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would love to hear you play anything that comes to mind, anything you're working on now, okay. a song you've written proud of. Sure. Whatever, wherever you want to take this, I'm going to give you complete carte blanche. Yeah, um, our audience will love to hear you. I've heard you a lot. I think you sang on one of the zoom calls we did uh, last year. Uh, after you sing, we'll, we'll wrap up with a couple of questions. And sure. My, my tagline at the end that I'm going to have you answer for me. So take well, it away. Well, thank you for that. I mean, this, this, is, this is in the category of uh, Twist My Arm. Hello, my name is John Royce Lynch, founder and CEO of PCMA Private Client. As a former professional surfer and native of Southern California, I have always enjoyed Wahoo's Fish Tacos. When the pandemic hit, the response by Wahoo's was unparalleled creating the California Love Drop by supporting frontline workers and those in need. On behalf of the PCMA private client community and our amazing team, it is an honor to be able to support this noble effort. To lend a hand and to learn more, please visit californialovedrop.org. So um, this, this song is, uh, I, I wrote it for my wife. Uh, we just had our 20th anniversary. I wrote it for a couple, couple of years ago. For our anniversary. And, um, you know, it's cheaper than flowers. There you go. <laughs> and lasts last longer. Last longer. Yeah, exactly. But uh, what's been interesting about this song during the pandemic is it's, I've played it for a good number of people as a kind of a, a theme about relying on each other. And when, when things get tough, we rely on each other. It's true for in a good marriage, and it's true in a team. It's true in a community. It's true in a global community like we have right now. And it's a good reminder that perhaps we should do that. Um, so I, I will tell you, um, 
It's an adjust, still an adjustment, even though I've been doing this for so long uh, virtually. So uh, if I screw it up a little bit along the way, I'll just uh, say I'm sorry and keep going. We won't know. It's called Can't Fall Down. Coming through all right? No problem. I muted myself, so we only hear you. Yeah, you sound great. Sometimes it seems the world is made of plaster. And we're picking up pieces every day. This tilt the world we're spinning on gets faster. And it makes it hard to stand up straight away. Remember when we lost all that money. Remember how it felt when the deal fell through. Do you believe me that it's true? I can't fall down with you. Do you believe me this true? I can't fall down with you. We turned around and all the years collided. Like the metronome was ticking out of time. All that poetry we've written and recited well somehow we always managed to make it rhyme remember when we brought our kids together remember how we felt when the last one flew do you believe me that it's true I can't fall down Do you believe me this true? I can't fall down with you. And when the earth is shifting under my feet, and I can't find a railing to hold on to, and gravity does everything to pull me to my knees. I find a way to stand up tall for you. Now the embers in the fireplace are glowing. And the rain has formed a lake out in the yard. And every moment that our love is growing is a gift from all the times when things were hard. Remember when that earthquake shook the ceiling. Remember how we felt when it rumbled through. Do you believe me that it's true? I can't fall down with you. Do you believe me I can't fall down with you.
never bought flowers for my wife that would have had that impact. That's for sure. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank I you. I love that. That's so good. I, I just want to I want to attend a Steve Farber concert because I've heard you sing. I know you wrote a song about your brother who passed. I know you've written probably a lot of other great songs. Who, what, who's, who or what is your musical inspiration? What do you listen to? Um, well, I you know, my background in music has been what we call nowadays a lot of Americana. Mm -hmm. We used to call it folk. You know, I'm a Dylan freak, uh, mm -hmm. as I can hear that. everybody should be. My all-time favorite uh, songwriter uh, was John Prine. Oh yeah, wow! Uh, who yep. just passed away? You know, it was one of the one of the early COVID casualties. COVID. Yep. And I've been listening to John Prine since I was a kid in high school, and he was a big part of the reason I started writing music. And I'm just a huge, huge fan. And then, but I have very eclectic tastes. I mean, yeah. I uh, I'm all over all over the map as far as uh, music goes. And the, um, you know, the brothers, the aforementioned brothers, Corin, right. have been great mentors to me in, in um, reigniting my songwriting. Because I used to write songs. I've got songs. I, I did an album, an EP, six songs with them in the studio uh, a few years ago. And these were songs that I, had written some of them 40 years ago. Wow. And just over the last year and a half, two years, I've got a whole bunch of new songs and they, they've been a big part of that process. So, um, it's really, it's really exciting. And I've been co-writing with some other people as well, which is, which is fun. Well, every time I've seen you 100% of my relationship with you, you've been sitting where you're sitting now. So I know I always see your, when I watch your videos, when I, I hear your audio messages, so I don't see you, your daily audio messages that I love. Um, we'll talk about that in a second, but uh, not that you have more time, but you probably do. You're not, like you said, you're not getting on airplanes. That's you're not right. traveling. Travel yeah. waste, not waste, but it certainly takes a lot of time. Um, what have you learned in these, I'll say now, 16 or 17 months? March of 2020 is probably about the time like you that we probably took our last trip, maybe February of 2020. What have you learned other than the obvious things? Is there something you've, that you're going to take away that here's a lesson I learned in the last 17 months that I would not have learned. And I'm so grateful for it. That I'm going to, it's going to stick with me. Yeah. It's actually, a, a, for me, it's a profound, it's a profound answer. And it's, it's one that uh, I think was facilitated by, by the, the pandemic scenario, but I'll try, I'll try to explain it. It's very, it, it feels very internal. But for many years, you know, as you know, I've been doing this work for a long time now. It's a few decades. And I've always had this feeling of striving, you know, building the Extreme Leadership Institute, growing, building, growing. How do we grow? How do we build? It's the entrepreneur kind of a thing. And what shifted for me internally, uh, particularly over the last few months, is that all kind of dissipated. That feeling of, of pushing the boulder up the mountain just went away. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. it's not like I don't want to grow and reach more people. I just want to do the aspect of that that I love doing. You know, do what you love in the service of people who love what you do. 
but I, I loved, it's not that I wasn't doing that before. It's just that, that my shift has been, I want to focus on the things where I'm making a contribution and I'm enjoying doing. So music is one way of doing that. There's no linear business outcome in writing songs. I mean, unless somebody picks up a song and, you know, which could happen and that'd be great, but that's, uh, that's not why I'm doing it. Right. And then the other thing you just mentioned a minute ago, these daily audio messages that I've been sending mm -hmm. out. So I'll give a little context for this. Monday, it's a subscription. Monday through Friday, every day, subscribers get an audio message about leadership, et cetera, uh, from me. And these messages are usually somewhere around two minutes long, mm -hmm. sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. And what you need to know is that, and they, they go out Monday through Friday. It takes me, I do it all myself. It takes me two to three hours to create 10 minutes of audio, five two-minute episodes, let's say. Yeah, I believe it. And why did I do it? Well, there's no money attached to it. People don't pay for the subscription. Because, <laughs> because mm -hmm. I want to give good content and help people out. And at first it was like, okay, we decided to do it. I wanted to do a year's worth. And, and then, you know, can I outsource it? Can I get somebody else to, I do the whole thing, which means create the message, record it and edit it. And each one to me is like, it's like a little song. It's like a little gem. And yeah. I get very particular about the editing and, and all of that. And instead of feeling like, I don't have time for this. It's it like, this is, yes, it's inspiring. Mm -hmm. And that represents a huge shift for me because I'm just loving the process of giving those ideas out, and then, Ed, I'm not exaggerating, every day. And you've been among these folks. Every day I get emails from people saying mm -hmm. things like, oh, I needed to hear that today, or thank you for this, and this was just, just what you know, the doctor ordered every single day. So I get immediate feedback, sure. immediate feedback um, that is worthwhile. And, and it to me, it represents... A use of my time where what I'm focused on is giving value. And what has happened as a result of that is um, new clients. New clients have come along just within the last couple of months. I didn't go after them. I didn't market. I didn't no sale. They just called me up and said, let's do something. And that's, that's the way that I want to do business. And I we was want not to do business with people that add value. Yeah, exactly. That's what you're doing. Exactly. So, yeah. so I wake up to those every day, by the way, and I share them and I know, and I have, I hopefully I've gotten a few people to subscribe because I forward it to a lot of people. Thank you. Yeah. I liked waking up this morning to the, oh shit moment one on leadership <laughs> that, that I heard this morning, because we've all had those where it's like, am I qualified for this? Can I handle this situation? Oh my gosh. How did I get to this office? You know, whatever that looks like. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, every day something in there hits me. So I want to thank you for creating that and following that inspiration. And thank I think you. you're, from what I hear you say, you're striving. You're just 
your definition of striving is different today than it might have been two years ago. It doesn't feel like striving. It feels like it feels more like giving than striving. And yeah. I think I guess and I think that's that's the fundamental difference, maybe. I haven't really thought about it before. But striving is about trying really hard to get something. And that that is what has dissipated. So it feels more like giving, like work, I'm still working and, and engaging my talent in order to, to give something. And I'll give you another example. So, so this is, um, I have a new book coming out and it's the first time that I've, I've actually been the co-author on a book and oh. it's not my story. It's a little off brand for me, but it's the, the book that I wrote with JJ French. Have you seen anything about this? On, online or anything? I've not. Okay, I was cool. going to ask what's next, so you're answering it before I ask. So feel free, keep going. Okay, so JJ French, you may not have heard of his name, may not be familiar to you, but I'm pretty confident you've heard of the band Twisted Sister. So Absolutely. twist. So their their anthemic, ridiculously huge songs are "We're Not Going to Take It" and "I Want to Rock." Uh, we're not going to take it is, I think, the most licensed uh, song in in metal history. So J.J. French is the founder of the band, the manager of the band, the owner of the brand and the guitarist for the band. And wow. And he's when I met him a number of years ago and he told me the Twisted Sister story about what they, you know, in, in pursuing their first record contract and. They're, it's just an unbelievable story, and he's incredibly good at telling it. So he, you know, I kind of mentored him because I said to him, listen, JJ, you got to write a book, and you got to speak. You got to get up on stage and tell people the story. So in our very first Extreme Leadership event, which was back in 2012, I had JJ speak as his speaking debut. So this was at the time mm. where Twisted Sister was playing to 100,000 people in festivals all over all over the world. And he spoke at my event, which was about 120 people. And he was so nervous. And it made him more, more nervous than the hundred thousand people, of course. And he's the stage yeah. he's the stage out of his his he's the stage banter guy. He's the guy that gets up on he and D Snyder, who's the famous, you know, front man for for uh Twisted, they're the, the guys that talk to the audience. So it's not like he, you know, he's used to talking. But anyway, he he told his story. And and it's amazing. So I was encouraging him to write a book, and he had a couple of false starts. And finally, we decided, why don't we just work on this book together? And we did. So we've got, uh, it's, it's part business book, because he's a business guy, and it's part memoir. Mm -hmm. So we call it a bizwar. And it's a uh, you're into those uh, yeah. ability and bizwar. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, bizwar was his invention. And, uh, it's by J.J. French and Steve Farber, but it's his story written in, you know, it's told in his voice. I just made it work on the page. That was my job. And in the publishing world, for people who are, for, for the uninitiated, um, what a publisher will do oftentimes before a book comes out is they'll print what they call galley copies of the book, which are kind of uh, paperback, uncorrected proofs that you can send to reviewers and whatnot. Yeah, I've got a so, few of those on my shelf over here. Yeah. So here's the galley. I'm going to show you the galley. And I'll describe it cool. for those who are not watching. The book is called Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll by J.J. French and Steve Farber. And we took the Twisted Sister logo, the TS, we turned it into the a logo, TB. Yeah. 
and uh, it turned out great. And it's it's very entertaining. I love it. It is um, definitely R rated and colorful. Let's say, and at times pretty freaking hilarious. I have. I'm looking forward to reading it, whether it's a galley copy or buying the copy when it's done. I, I can't wait to read it. But my point in, in what reminded me of this, Ed, is again, it's you know striving versus giving, right? So do mm-hmm. I want this book to be successful? Sure. I didn't do this for the money. We actually have to make quite a bit of money before I see any money out of it. But that's not why I did sure. it. I did it because he's my greater than yourself project. In this, in this arena. In other words, I'm kind of a mentor to him in the field of, of, uh, you know, writing and speaking, certainly not in the field of rock and roll. (laughs) That would be, I see you on stage with him at some point though. Yeah. Well, oh, we have both speaking and singing. Oh, we've done that. We've done that. Yeah. We've, uh, at at our events, we always have a jam session. So I'll send you, uh, I'll send you a link. I've got a, there's a YouTube video somewhere of the two of us jamming on stage. It's really a lot, a lot of fun. But anyway, that's been the most significant shift for me, Ed, is that, that feeling of being at peace with, with uh, making a contribution and just letting go of the, the worry and the, the striving about building a business. And what's happening as a result is my business is growing. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I love that because it's, kind of, it's that, um, that really that philosophy of abundance. Striving in, implies I don't have it yet. I'm going after it. Giving, you have to have it to give it. And one thing that's really touched me with you and with Ken Blanchard and Gary Ridge and others in, in your geographic right. area, maybe something in the water in San Diego, I don't know. But a lot of people around the world are, are more giving of their time and of their talent and, and even their treasure, it seems, and their touch, as Ken would add, um, during this time that we're still in. I hate to say it, that we're still in it. Yeah. It feels like we want to say the words that were post-pandemic, but we're not. Events are still shutting down. Yeah, I love that. I, and thank you. Thank you for not only giving of your talent and your time this morning, but in the past too, you know, coming on some of the calls we've done in the past. And, My, pleasure. Uh, My pleasure. Very grateful for you and for your time. I was going to say what's next, but you just talked about that a little bit. Uh, I'll just finish today and we could go another hour, but uh, I'll, I'll wrap up for yours as well. As you alluded to at the beginning of the podcast, or at some point, the name of my podcast is indeed From the Heart and play on my name. But I always end with that same question, and, and it's, it's somewhat redundant as you just spent the last hour answering it. But if I were to ask you right now, Steve, as we wrap up this time together today, and you've talked about what you've done to this point in your career and in your life and your family, your music, what you have coming, if I were to just ask you the question, Steve Farber, what's in your heart? What would you say? Uh, friendship. So um, the friendship that you and I have developed over, you know, virtually, the, the greatest reward in my work are the friends that I've made and the friends that I make every day. And, and that happens in all kinds of ways. And much of it happens through other people connecting with me because they've heard of my work. And then reach out to me in some way. I have many friends that I've made in that way. And if we had another hour, I'd tell you, tell you some of those stories. So that's what's on my heart. This is all about friendship for me. And uh, so I invite people to be my friend. <laughs> and not just the Facebook friend kind of, kind of yeah. scenario. So right. these, for example, these, these, yeah, daily, these daily audio messages. Just this morning, actually, it occurred to me that I need to make it easier to find that. So I bought the URL 
dailyaudiomessage.com. So if you go awesome. there, you can, you can subscribe to it. And, and those messages come to you from my personal email address. So you just hit reply and our conversation starts and perhaps a friendship begins. I've liked that. That's one of the things I was going to comment on when you were talking about that earlier is when, when one of your messages hits me really hard and I'm in a moment where I can take time to reply, I do. And you always get right back to me, which I love. So, well, Steve, this is great. I, I can't wait to do this again. And I really can't wait to actually give you a hug, my friend, and uh, in person and uh, read your next book, Twisted Business. JJ French, that sounds great. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank I'm you looking for forward time. to that as well. And um, you have a great afternoon and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Steve.